Good morning, church. How you guys doing? You doing good? You look good. Hey, do me a favor. Tap your neighbor on the shoulder and tell him or her, you look good to me. Come on. The folks looking for dates are so thankful I'm up here right now. Tap your other neighbor on the shoulder and say, the one you didn't choose, and say, I am so sorry I did not pick you first, but you look good too. And I'm glad you came. My name is Mike Wittig. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Bethel Church. And upstairs in the student ministry, we have a lot of fun. And one of the things we do that I love is when Brady or I speak, um, Brady is the guy I work with up there. The students try their best to not just be spectators of the message, but participators in the proclamation of the word. So they say things like, amen, come on, that's good, that'll preach, that's deep. So I just want to throw that out there and offer that to you guys. If you guys hear something that's worthy of an amen, feel free to shout it out and affirm it. Let your neighbors know, hey, that's all right. And I promise you, I preach better and shorter. (laughs) The louder you are. Yeah, come on. I heard it. I heard it. So, amen. Come on. That's good. Preach it. Hallelujah. Hurry up, Mike. I'm starving. Whatever you want to say. So what I want to do is just take a second here. Be thinking about if you ever hear something good in the next few minutes, what you would say. And on three, I want to hear you say to me that what you would say. All right. It could be amen. Could be come on. Whatever. Right. You ready? One, two, three. Here we go. A lot of amens. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm so glad you came. Uh, Six years ago, around this time, six years ago, I literally uh, spiritually limped through those doors. A broken man, a messed up man. So many issues and problems. And this church was so kind to me and loving to me and walked with me through some dark times. And they still do. And so if you were here this morning and you were like, maybe someone made, made you come Or maybe you don't know why you're here, but you just showed up. I don't think you're here by accident this morning. And I'm so glad you came. And I hope for you, Bethel Church can minister to you in the way it has to me and still does to me. So I want to let you know you're welcome here. The person who's been coming here 10 years and today you're having a rough day to the brand new visitor, all of you. I hope you know you're loved here, you're wanted here, you're welcomed here. So with that, will you guys pray with me? And then we're going to get started. Father, be with us right now in these short few moments together as a family. I pray you would use this time as we open your word to minister to some hurting hearts. May the gospel be a balm into our deepest wounds. And may we leave this place this morning more in love with you, more in awe of your Savior and Son, Jesus Christ, than when we walked in. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series through exile. We'll be, in, we'll be in 1 Peter. If you've been coming for a while, we've been teaching through the book of 1 Peter, a series called Exile. Have you guys been enjoying and been blessed by the series so far? Hasn't it been good? I've been coming for a while. For me, this is probably my favorite series that we've gone through as a church. It's been so relevant to where I am. Thankful for our teaching ministry here. So to catch you up to speed, leading up to verse 8 here. Peter's been addressing us, a church in exile, 
and talking about how we are to engage in different contexts. So a few months ago, we talked about from here how we are to engage within the context of government. Do you guys remember that sermon? Government. And then a few weeks ago, it was within the context of the workplace. Pastor Steve talked about the Downton Abbey staff. Remember that one? The Downton Abbey sermon? Who was here for that? Few? Okay. So it was our role within the context of government, our role within the context of the workplace. And May has been marriage month because Peter's been addressing our role within the context of marriage. And now this week, he's going to kind of close out this section. And if you're not married or you don't have a job right now, this applies to all of us. Because he's going to be addressing the church now. The church. How are we to engage culture? How, do we, how are we to act when people in the church hurt us? When people out there hurt us? What are we to do? Should we um, return evil for evil? Should we hate when someone hates us? When someone slanders us as a, as a fellow brother or sister, should we slander back? Should we, when society um, hurts us, makes fun of us, should we form giant coalitions and flex our political muscle against them? Is that the strategy going forward? Well, Paul's, Peter is going to address that here. So we'll read in verse 8, from verse 8 to 12, and I'm going to zoom in on verses 8 and 9, but we'll read all of them. He, Peter writes, <clears throat> finally, all of you, that's church, so finally church, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. People who were feeling the pressure of evil upon them. Do not repay evil for evil. Reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And really quick sidebar here. What does it mean there, obtain a blessing? And we're going to look at Jesus here in uh, the Gospels. Jesus says it this way. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So when you bless, when you help others, and those of you who help and serve and give of yourselves to other people, you know in there somehow spiritually a blessing comes to you. And the best example I have of this lately is this. A few weeks ago, I was at a birthday party for my one-year-old nephew. His name's Jackson. And uh, his mom, Jessica, had spent so much time, so much money, so much energy making this party amazing. Every detail to the T. She worked so many hours on this party for him. And it came time for him to open presents. And the little kid's on her lap. He's ripping up his wrapping paper, smiling. But I saw both of them. And I've known her for eight years. I have never once seen her smile that big. In blessing him, she received the blessing. You guys see that? It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so that's the argument Peter's making. And then what he does, Peter often does this in his letters. You'll see if you read farther down. He'll make an argument, then he brings out the Old Testament to kind of affirm and validate his argument. So what he does here is now he's going to quote from Psalm 34. So I'll read that, verse 10 to 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So when they hurt you, seek peace is what he's saying. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
So the psalm writer here is not saying if you're righteous in Christ that God's going to answer all your prayers. We know that's not the case. But he is saying to us, his ears are towards you. He's listening. As you pray, what a motivation for us to pray, right? He listens. He'll listen to you. And he'll determine whether to give it or not. But he will listen. You have his ear. And so let's just focus right now. I'll go back to verse 8. And what we're going to do this morning for a few minutes is just work through this passage. My outline will just be this passage. We're going to talk through each of these points. Peter writes, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So first, unity of mind. What does that mean? What does it mean to have unity of mind? Does that mean we have to have uniformity in how we think? Of course not. We all have different backgrounds and histories here, different age groups. We come from different places. None of us agree perfectly on everything. And he's not saying we have to all agree on everything. Has anyone here, if you're uh, willing to admit it, seen Star Wars Episode 2? Come on, church. All right, a few of us. If you haven't seen it, you didn't miss too much. The original trilogy is much preferred. Star Wars Episode 2, there's this scene where all these clone troopers, they all look the same, walk the same, talk the same, fill the screen. Thousands of clones, right? He is not calling us to be clones. There's no assembly line here where we all have to come in lockstep and share the same perspective. We don't have to share the same perspective to share the same purpose. And our diversity, our differences can enrich us if we let them. Think about that. We can bring our histories into this and sharpen each other and enrich each other, can't we? But the only way unity of mind for us as a church and for the church as a whole will happen is if we can unite under a bigger banner, the banner of Jesus, the banner of it's all about him, the banner of the gospel and advancement of the gospel, the banner of making disciples of all nations. Besides that, we have so many different opinions and ideas and ministry ideas But hopefully in that we can come together, right? Different perspectives, yet the same purpose. And in order to do that, in order for us as a church to be unified, here's what's got to happen. There's going to have to be some setting aside of our egos, which is very hard for us, isn't it? Set aside my ego. That's what he's calling us to do. Centering on yourself breeds division in the church, but centering on your Savior can bring unity to the church. Centering on yourself breeds division. Me, my ideas, my philosophies, my soapbox, my plans. Pastor Steve didn't say it this way, the way I want it said. Therefore, I'm going to spread contention in the crowd. But centering on your Savior can bring unity to the church. And if there's ever a time for the church, for Bethel Church, small c, big church to be unified, it's right now. As we're feeling the pressure from our culture, let us be united under the banner of the cross. Under the banner of Jesus Christ, set aside our egos, striving for the similar purpose. It's cooperation in the midst of diversity. And here's a helpful, for me, a helpful analogy to help understand this, what this means, what he's saying. Again, not to be clones. We can all be different, and that's to be celebrated. He's saying, uh, be united in the midst of diversity. So I have our bodies. We have hands, legs, eyes, brain, hair, skin, all these different things. They look different. They have different functions, right? But if I want to walk to this microphone, everything works together towards that end. Do you see that? 
So we can be different, yet the objective is the same. It's advancement of the gospel. It's loving our neighbors, making disciples, and unite on those things. Unite under Christ. That is how the church, with all our different opinions, can come together. Amen? Amen. So have unity of mind, cooperation in the midst of diversity. He also writes, have sympathy. Sympathy means to feel, strive to feel what others feel, to enter into their pain, to hurt when others are hurting. Romans puts it this way, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And there are some people next to you in your section that are in great need of sympathy. They don't need your advice. They don't need your opinion. They don't need your perspective. They need your sympathy. They need you to listen. Don't try and change people. You know, it's God's job to change people. It's our job to love. To love them. And listen and to sympathize with them. Think about Job, the biblical character Job. He went through this massive ordeal. Trauma like we cannot begin to understand. And he's sitting there on the heap. And his friends come to him. And they do a pretty good job at first. They just sat there. They were present. Entering into his pain. But you know when they screwed up? When they started talking. They started sharing their opinions on why God's doing this to you. And what you need to do, Job. Sometimes God calls us just to be there. Enter into their pain. Don't give prescriptions. But listen. Love. And those of you who are going through a hard time, um, you'll not say amen to this, but I know in your heart you are thinking it. Like, that guy's right. When I'm feeling pain, the last thing I want is someone preaching to me. Unless it's good news. Unless it's of God's love. So if you're going to say something, talk about that. And listen to them. And why do we struggle with sympathy so much? And one word that comes to mind for me is the word selfishness. Sympathy is entering into someone else's pain. Selfishness is when I'm absorbed and obsessed with myself. And we all struggle with this to varying degrees. Selfishness shuts out sympathy. So do me a favor. Tap your neighbor. Tell them selfishness shuts out sympathy. Let's see it. First service had a hard time with this one. There you go. You guys, much more active. Participators in the proclamation of the word. Amen. Selfishness. That's why it's so hard for us to sympathize because we're obsessed with ourselves. And sympathy is calling us for once in our life out of ourselves into someone else's pain. Unity of mind, he writes. Sympathy. Brotherly love. What's brotherly love? What does that mean? And we all might have a brother. You know of a brother. Brothers and sisters can hurt each other, can offend each other, can drive each other crazy. I remember as a kid just pulling my sister's hair in the car. It was horrible. Um, driving me crazy at times. But at the end of the day, he's my brother. She's my sister. Brotherly love is deeper than just an acquaintance kind of love. It's a love that sticks out the hard times. You don't bail. So people here, when they fall, when they hurt you, when they offend you, to not bail on them, to walk with them, with them through this. That's what he's calling us to do. And I've actually seen this this year at our church. I've seen people fail big time here, make huge mistakes. And I've seen brothers and sisters in this church walk alongside them, not leaving them, but walking with them through this. It's been a beautiful thing to behold. And in my life at this church, my experience at Bethel has been the same. 
As I make mistakes, brothers and sisters, come alongside me and love me and walk with me through them. Praise the Lord for that. Bob Bennett writes, How we walk with the broken speaks louder than how we sit with the great. Brotherly love, a love that sticks it out. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. What's a tender heart? What's tenderness? It's the opposite of callousness, of aloofness, of coldness, of roughness. And you all know what it's like to have someone in your life. It might be a dad or a coach or a gym teacher or a mother-in-law or a boss or someone at one point in time was rough with you. And that hurts, doesn't it? That can crush the spirit of a child and it can even crush the spirit of an adult. He's saying to us, that's not Christianity. I understand we struggle, we make mistakes, and sometimes we act out in that way, but that's not pure Christianity. It's tenderness. Tenderness. So when our neighbors marriage break down, when financially they're in shambles, when they have some traumatic event, do they view the church as a place that will receive them in tenderness and care for them and minister to them? Or do they see the church as a place where we're right and we're going to let you know where we're right? I hope we're known for our tenderness more than our rightness. Even though we can all agree we want to be right, but let us also be tender. The church is to be an embassy of grace. It's this, in the world of dog-eat-dog, it's an outpost of mercy. It's an oasis of unconditional love. It should be the one place in the world where the broken can come and feel beloved. Where the hurting can come and feel helped. Where the messed up can come and feel ministered to. And that won't happen unless we ooze sympathy towards them. And have a tender heart. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So a humble mind is, um, you can fake humility maybe in your actions, but to have it seared into your mind, have it be who you are. What is humility? What is humility? Philippians 2, 3 writes, With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's humility. It's regarding Nathan Napier more important than me. It's my neighbor. He means more to me than me. It's hard to do, right? And what's so interesting in this passage, particularly this one, humble mind, Peter's writing into a culture that did not see humility as virtuous. The Greeks esteemed ego, bravado, hubris, excessive pride. To them, Christ was a picture of weakness. He didn't take a stand. He submitted. As Peter's writing counterculturally here, saying they're wrong. In our culture, we find the same thing, don't we? Our pop songs, music songs, movies applaud ego and swagger. He's calling us to a different way. Christians, we should look different. The way of humility. So what is humility exactly? And C.S. Lewis can help us here. Is humility walking around the church with my head down saying, woe is me, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I, I'm not worthy to talk to you. Is that humility? Is, it, is low self-esteem humility? Of course not. Because in that conversation, I'm still talking about me, right? It's about Mike in that moment. Woe is me. C.S. Lewis writes, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. 
Come on, church. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And Tim Keller calls this the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That is what Peter's calling us to here. So here's some questions for us to convict us and to hopefully humble us. When people think of you, let me ask you, are you known for your division amongst the church or your desire to unify the church? How are you known? Are you looking for distinctions and differences with others or are you trying to unify? Are you known for your selfishness or for your sympathy? Are you known for your indifference towards other people or for your interest in other people? Are you known for your critical spirit or your compassionate heart? Are you known for your hubris, your excessive pride, or for your humility? Peter is calling us to have unity of mind together, united, one purpose, to have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And finally, he writes to people again who are receiving evil. He writes, do not repay evil for evil. Strong words. Do not repay reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And reviling is when someone speaks evil of you or ill of you. So we know what it's like to receive evil. Now they're slandering us as well. In those moments, as we're being ostracized, bullied, hurt, he's saying, don't return it. And you know, those first five that we looked at, right? Sympathy, brotherly love, tenderness. Maybe you're here thinking, oh, I got that down. I mean, I got that in the bag. I think your spouse would disagree, but you think I got that in the bag, right? I got those. Maybe you're here thinking that I certainly don't have those down. But if you, if that's the case, this one here is going to stick. If those didn't convict you, this will, because I don't think any of us do this well. Return evil for blessing. So often victimized people victimize. We continue and perpetuate this cycle of violence, don't we? Your spouse and you are having an argument. Voices are raised. And I think in that moment, what's need, what this moment needs is me to raise my voice louder. Return violence for violence, anger for anger. When someone hurts me, I'll just be honest. Let me just be honest with you guys. Someone hurts me, I don't want to bless them. I'm about to go to war. I'm about to bring the heat. I'm going to call them in my office and get in their face. I mean, that's what you want to do when people hurt us. But that just perpetuates this cycle of violence. And somewhere it has to end. And Peter's saying for the church, we should be the place. As we go into the culture, as we go into the church building, as we go into our homes, be the place where it ends. And I have a little analogy to show you here. Maybe you've seen this before. It's a backstop. They're going to put it on the screen in a minute. A backstop. Have you ever played t-ball or have your kids play softball or t-ball? If you have, you've seen this. You take a ball and you throw it against the backstop with force. What happens? Stops, right? That's what Peter wants us to be. Go into the culture. Go into your workplace. Go into your home. Go into tough, argumentative situations and be a backstop. Absorb. It's hard. That's convicting for me. Hard to do. Be a backstop. We think, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to return evil for evil. I can fight this with more vengeance. And Martin Luther King has a word for us here we can learn from. He said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. He knows what Peter's talking about here. 
He's saying, go out into the culture and be a backstop. And I want to, for those of you who are helped by visual aids, this is such a simple thing, but I just want to bring it out anyway and help you. Um, in contrast with a backstop, here is a table tennis racket. I love to play ping pong. If you're good at ping pong, come challenge me sometime. I love to play you. This is a t- ping pong paddle, table tennis racket. What this does, I receive a serve and I hit it back, right, with force. This absorbs a little bit, this rubber here, this absorbs the force and projects it back out along with my swing. This is more like who we are. Backstop. Oh, I don't want to do that. This is what we do. And here's what I mean. I'm going to hit some balls into the crowd. So if you're sleeping, now is the time to wake up. So at home, my wife and I are having an argument. Things get heated. She says something I don't like. You know what I want to do? Oh, I'm going to dish it back out. I'm going to serve it back. I'm going to return evil for evil, aren't I? Someone hurts me at work. Oh, they're getting it. I'm going to shut my office door and slander them. We're going over here in the far corner. You guys ready? Someone commits a sin against me. I'm going to perpetuate. Oh, nice. Last service, I hit a lady. She's just sitting there. And she's right in the middle. And the ball just took a nasty slice. And it just, she didn't even move. No reflex. Just took it. It was great. But I, I apologized to her afterwards. I felt so bad. Oh, man. She just took it like a champ. This is what we are. And Peter's calling us. Church. First century church current church put down the racket set it down guys apply that in so many ways in your life so many different situations we want to return evil for evil don't we he's saying put it down just drop the racket someone somewhere at some time has to be the place where the violence ends where the evil ends am i right should we just perpetuate this shouldn't we be different i think we're called to a different level a higher standard to go out into the culture and be backstops, go out into our homes, into our marriages, into our child rearing and be backstops to absorb. And, you know, I'm thinking about this, about the rackets, about the backstops, reading these passages, reading these virtues. And it was all very convicting. And as I speak it to you, just know, I don't fulfill any of these perfectly. My wife would tell you that. None of these things I embody perfectly. And I got to thinking, who does? Is it Peter, the guy who wrote this? Is he the one who embodies these virtues? The same Peter who had division with the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts over the gospel? That same guy? Same one who, when they came for his master, committing evil against Christ, he draws his sword and slices off a guy's ear, returning evil for evil? Is that the same Peter who embodies these Is it Luther, Edwards, Calvin, the great heroes of the faith? No. There's only one name that comes to mind when I think of these virtues. One name who fully fulfills them. The name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is. Jesus is the fulfillment of these commands. He's the fulfillment of all the scripture. That's why it's him we proclaim around here. That's why Bethel Church strives to be all about Him. He succeeds where we fail. He lived a life we could not live, and so we cling to His righteousness, not our own. Becoming a Christian and living as a Christian doesn't mean I'm going to go out of here striving to obey these on my own. It's clinging to Christ who obeyed them for us. And in that, by His grace, He molds us into looking like Him. 
Jesus succeeded in every area where we fail. He shows us how it's done. He models perfect unity for us within the Trinity. Think about it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is diversity there. Distinct persons of the Trinity, yet there is cooperation. One purpose, one goal to redeem the world to the glory of God the Father. Within the Trinity, we do not see selfish disunity, but unified divinity. And Jesus models for us unity of mind. He perfectly models sympathy for us. No one has ever walked the earth with greater eyes of sympathy and care than Jesus Christ. Always had time for whoever could get his attention. He always stopped what he was doing. He would listen, enter into their pain, help them. Radically others-centered, not self-centered. Jesus perfectly models brotherly love for us. Proverbs writes, and you guys might be familiar, if you went to Juana, you know this verse. Proverbs writes of the friend that sticks closer than a brother. A friend who doesn't bail on you when everyone else does. A friend who, when others move out, he moves in. That person is Jesus Christ. Never bailing on us. Walking with us through the hard times. Jesus Christ sees you at your worst, friend. He knows your secrets. And he stays. He knows your deepest, darkest shame and sin, and he loves you anyway. That's brotherly love. Never leaving. He says to you right now, I will never forsake you. The embodiment of love in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us what a completely tender heart looks like. Never once was he indifferent towards suffering or callous towards pain. He always had time to be concerned. So compassionate, so loving, so tender. He had this soft spot for the disabled, for children, for the weak, for the desperate, for the downtrodden, for the rejects of society. That's who he would run towards. So compassionate. Jesus also schools us in humility. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to it or hang on to it, but he humbled himself, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, if anyone should have walked the earth and been arrogant, if anyone could have walked the earth and had swagger, It's the creator of the earth. It's Jesus. Yet we see such something so counterintuitive to us. He is the most humble man who ever walked the earth. Amazing. A few years ago, there was a movie that came out. Um, You might have seen it called Man of Steel about Superman, the new uh, reboot of the Superman franchise. So they were marketing it in a lot of different ways. One of the ways they marketed the movie was to Christians. And to the church. And they wanted to try and kind of highlight the similarities between Superman and Jesus. And there are quite a few. Um, 33 years of age is the time of Superman at the movie. When it came out. Both are seen as a savior figure, messianic figure. Both are not of this world. They come from a different place into our context. Both are sent here by their father and now live with a stepfather, if you will. Both come from humble, small towns. 
Both are powerful, both are misunderstood, but there is a massive distinction I want to draw out regarding Superman and Jesus. Superman leads by strength, by might, by power, by force. Jesus led by laying down his might, his power, his force. The Superman comes to win wars. The Savior comes to wash feet. And he shows us in that what true greatness is. It's humility. It's laying down your right to return evil for evil. Laying it down. You could be right. You could let them know you're right. He could have called all these angels down. It's laying it down. Finally, Jesus did not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, he blessed. As he was led to the cross, they spit on him. You guys know the story. He didn't spit back. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As they cursed him, he didn't curse back, church. As they mocked him, he did not mock back. He didn't call down lightning from heaven like Thor on them, though he could have. He didn't go Hulk smash on his enemies, though he could have. What did he do when they accused him? He advocated for them. He blessed them. He petitioned God on their behalf, saying, Father, forgive these guys. They don't understand what they're doing. No wonder for thousands of years people worship this man. No wonder they call him a savior. No wonder we gather together on Sunday because we don't do that, but he does. Praise God, he does, right? Jesus was and he is the place where the violence ended. Jesus was and is the divine backstop and he's the divine backstop for us. When we fail, he takes it for us. I'm just going to close with this story. One of my favorite examples in the Bible of Jesus not returning evil for evil, not returning violence for violence, is found in John chapter 13. This so ministered to me. I pray it ministers to you as we leave. So the disciples are gathered around the table in John 13, and they're having the Last Supper, having a nice time. All of a sudden, things get really awkward. Jesus says, just so you guys know, one of you is going to betray me. And the tension could be cut with a knife in that room. It was so, imagine being there. What a weird thing to say, to hear, to be a part of that conversation. So they start asking amongst themselves, who is it? You know, hey, John, ask Jesus who it is. So John asks Jesus, who is it? And here's what Jesus says. Now, we all know the story. We know it's Judas, greatest traitor in all of history. We know who it is. Judas is right next to Jesus. So John asked him, Master, who is it? And what we would do, and I'll tell you what I would do in that moment. I would have said in front of everyone, it's Judas. He's the guy. I'd totally call him out. Make him feel awkward at least. Have my revenge in a small way that way. But here's what Jesus says. <clears throat> he says to them, the person whom I feed with this bread dipped in wine, that's the one who will betray me. And so he takes a piece of bread, dips it in wine, leans over to Judas, looks him in the eye with those eyes of tenderness and compassion and love and mercy, and he feeds him. 
think about that. What an awkward, weird thing to do. And I was wrestling with that as I'm reading it. Like, what's going on there? What's the significance there? I know there's significance. What is it? Why would he do that? Why not just call him out? Why would you feed him like that? What a personal act to have someone's hands right, right in your face. All my business and my personal space, you know. And I learned in that culture, sometimes people did that. That's something that happened at times. But you know what? You would have a guest over. You would feed someone like that. You wouldn't feed an acquaintance. You wouldn't feed a long-lost friend. You wouldn't feed someone off the street. You wouldn't even feed a good friend. You know who you'd feed like that? Your dearest, most personal friend. Someone whom you love with all your heart. You feed your brother. Jesus is saying in that moment, Judas, I know what you're going to do to me. I want you to know I know. But I want you to know one thing before you do. I love you. You're my dude. You're my friend. Now go do what you have to do. And here's my thought for us. If Jesus can love Judas like that, with what Judas would do to him, the traitor who got him killed, you know he can love you. Despite what you've done, despite where you come from, despite what you're struggling with right now. No matter how you feel about yourself, no matter your past, no matter your present, he sent me up here this morning to tell you he loves you. Despite your adultery, Jesus says to you, I love you. Despite your sin, he says to you, I want you to know I love you. Despite your anger problem, he says to you right now, I love you. His arms are reaching out towards you in love. That bread, as we know, represents his body. The wine represents his blood. It's a picture of his salvation death for us on the cross. If you want to know, he didn't just declare his love for you. He demonstrated his love for you on the cross. How do you know he loves you? You look to the cross. He says, behold, my love for you. People who commit evil against me all the time. Because what do we do? We pursue any and everything but Christ when it's convenient for us. Let's be honest. Any and every passion but Jesus. And he comes at us with his one-way, unconditional love. His arms are reaching out to you. Question for you this morning before you leave. Will you receive it? Will you believe? And will you receive it? That love. Will you let that love rock you? Let that love define you. To be defined not by your righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness. Not by your love for him, but his love for you. Will you let that define you? Shape you? Mold you? He gives you his body. He gives you his blood. And by this, he says to you and to me, what you know, I know what you've done. He knows. He knows, guys. You look great right now, but he knows. I want you to know I know what you've done, but I want you to know I love you. You're my dude. You're my girl. And I'm convinced if we actually believe that, if we actually believe the gospel, rest it in that, let that be our foundation, let it root us. How gradually over time, we will begin to look more like Jesus. 
these attributes that we just talked about earlier will be a natural outflow as we bask in his love for us. Over time, you're going to find yourself seeking unity with Christians, not division. As you recall and rest and feast upon his love, you'll find yourself more sympathetic and less selfish. It's hard to bask in love and not be able to grow in love towards others. And you'll see that in your life as you bask in this love. Your hard hearts will begin to soften. As you see the humility of Christ for you, that's going to work on your own humility a little bit. When we are shaken by his radical grace for us, when we are rocked by his mercy, we're quicker to distribute that mercy to others. We'll find ourselves with a desire to not always return evil for evil. Reviling for reviling, violence for violence, but instead to bless. By his grace in the church, may it be so. Let's pray.